1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is going to sum up a lot of his previous instruction here. He's been speaking since chapter 1 about their divisions, about how they see leadership, about how their view of wisdom has led them to particular divisions and jealousies and strife and envy. And they've been looking at both Paul and Apollos and ministry in general in a very unspiritual and immature way. And the proof of that was all this kind of carnal divisions and fighting and the things happening in the church. So here Paul is just going to kind of sum up what he's been talking about. And if you, you know, if you would ask, so how are ministers to be seen and how is ministry to be understood? Well, Paul tells them right here in verse one, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. He had just told them at the end of the last chapter, how, do they, how are they supposed to look at Paul and Apollos? Well, Paul and Apollos are nothing. We're just servants of the boss. We're different, but we're doing the thing that he told us to do and created us to do. And God has given us to you. We belong to you in Christ. And if you want to think about us, here's how you should think about us. Very simply, think of us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. This is what we are. We're, he's the boss and we're just doing what we're told. We're all just his servants. And Paul wants them to look at them in a particular way. He uses a different word in the Greek for servants here than he had used for himself and Apollos previously. And the last one relates more to being deacons or literally kind of the idea is the labor they actually did. They were working for him. Here the word is that of an under rower. You might have seen movies where slaves are chained under boats and they have to row in cadence. Uh, but it's used in other ways as well. Jesus says in John 18, 36, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants, it's the same word there, would fight. In Acts 13, 5, John Mark is called the servant or the assistant of Paul and Barnabas. So he wasn't just rowing their boat. Uh, the picture is these, they are servants under orders. They are just doing what they're told. They're people who are following the instructions given to them. And he says, we're servants of Christ. We don't just serve Christ. We are servants of Christ. Those are two different things. Because you can do things that look like service and not do the actual thing that God wants you to do. That's, that's very different. You know, you can have your kid doing certain chores and expect them to do those chores. And if they just do something else, like, hey, dad, I mowed the lawn. And you're like, but I already mowed the lawn. I wanted you to take out the trash. I'm like, well, I didn't take out the trash, but I mowed the lawn. Like, that's, the service is nice, but you're not actually doing what I told you to do. And sometimes in the Christian life, we can have an idea that sir, as long as it's not something sinful, as long as I'm serving, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. No, what the Bible says is we're supposed to be servants of Christ, which means I do what he tells me to do. And that's what my service looks like. What he puts in front of me and what he doesn't, what he gives me to do and what he doesn't, what he's called me to do, what he hasn't. I just, he's the master. I just stay in my lane. 
And Paul said, here's how I want you to think about us. Think about us as servants of Christ. We're just following orders. He lays out the cadence. We follow the cadence. He's the one who directs the army. We follow the commands. If Jesus said fight, we would fight. But Jesus said not to fight, so we're not fighting. John Mark was with Paul and Barnabas, and he's like, whatever you tell me to do, that's what I'm going to do. And Paul says, this is how you should think of us. Picture us as servants of Christ and faithful stewards. They were stewards, which means they are people who keep and look after things that they do not possess themselves. He had already said they're nothing in and of themselves. Jesus made it clear, all of us, we can do nothing without him. But whatever he's given us, whatever he's put in our hand, we're supposed to be faithful with those things. Whatever he's made us stewards of, he says they're particularly stewards of the mysteries of God. But Paul wants them to understand, like, these things are not our own. We don't, we don't own these things. Christ has given them to us. Joseph, of course, to me, is the best picture of a steward in the Bible. He was faithful wherever the Lord had him. He was faithful when he was at home, and it got him sold into slavery with his brothers. When he's a slave in Potiphar's house, he's so faithful as a slave that he becomes the head of all of Potiphar's house, even faithful with what wasn't his, which was Potiphar's wife who then lies about him because he won't sleep with her and says he tried to rape her, and then he gets thrown in prison. Then, because he's so faithful in prison, the guy who runs the prison puts him in charge of all the prisoners. And in all these humble scenarios, he was faithful, and then he becomes second in charge of all of Egypt. And he's faithful with literally the whole country. And the whole world has to come to him for food. And he's faithful with high authority and glory there. But wherever he was, none of those things were his. Potiphar's house wasn't his. His own home wasn't his. The prison wasn't his. And even Egypt, he was second to Pharaoh, wasn't his. But he was simply a steward in all those places, faithful with what was extended to him. And Paul says, you want to think of ministers. This is, this is what we are. Think of us as servants of Christ. Consider us that. And consider us stewards, and stewards particularly of the mysteries of God. That being, again, the revelation of God. Um, when the Bible uses the word mystery, again, it relates to something that we could not have discovered on our own that God has revealed. So, particularly the revelation of God. The true minister, unlike many kind of religious circles, uh, his job is not to somehow be a conduit of supernatural power or magic through sacraments, like even baptism or communion or just religious rituals. What, what the minister has actually had committed to him, notice Paul says here, is the truth of God, the mysteries of God, the revelation of God, the testimony of God that Paul has been talking about here already. What's been once and for all delivered to the saints, the faith. We don't make up the truth ourselves. We do not own it. I cannot cherry pick what I like. We believe, and it's been said through many people through the ages, it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. This is God's word, not my word. 
It's God's word. He has said it. He owns it. And I am a steward of his word. And any good minister, not just a pastoral, although that's kind of the picture here, but any of us who are ministering as a servant of Christ, we are ministering through his revelation, his mysteries, the things that he's given us, and we're supposed to trust those things and be faithful with them. Jesus would say in Matthew thirteen fifty two. Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. We're just bringing things out that are already there. We don't own it. We don't create it. And I think it's important because there's always a pull, as there was in Corinth. People wanted Paul to, to speak about different things, to use the philosophy of the age, to use different tactics as he spoke. There was all types of pressure for Paul to focus on other things, which is, again, why he said, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And even today, ministers of Christ, there's always a pull to focus on pop culture, news, politics, statistics, spiritual experience. People begin to talk about more of what they've experienced than even what the scripture's saying crazy conspiracy stuff, blood moons and whatnot, stuff that has nothing to do with the actual revelation of God, which is true and trustworthy and is demonstrated in the spirit and in power. And what happens is you're no longer a steward of the mysteries of God. You're trying to steward something else that's not really yours or given to you. And people end up in dangerous positions. Even Calvary chapels can do this. It's not just other folks. I'm thankful for the history that we have and the exposition that we have. But look, there's, I think there's something like 1,800 Calvaries now around the U.S. or something. There's going to be some weird guys in there. So it's going to happen everywhere. It doesn't matter what denomination you're a part of. It doesn't matter where you are. Everybody needs to know whether you feel like the Lord's calling you to be a minister or you are here or you go somewhere else. Like, How should you think about a minister of Christ and what a minister is supposed to do? Well, Paul's being very clear here. They're supposed to be servants of Jesus Christ and they're stewards. And what they're stewards of is they are stewards of the mysteries of God. And there is enough in the mystery of God to fill eternity. And definitely more than a half hour, an hour speech. Paul would say in Colossians chapter one, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the affliction of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me, wasn't his, for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. God said, God gave me a stewardship 
to his word and to this thing that's been revealed, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he said, I got a lot of work to do in relation to that. And I have something to say to every man. I warn every man. I teach every man. And my goal is to present every man before him, perfect or mature, in the things that he has revealed. And this stewardship has plenty to cover that people don't need to run to other things or become stewards of other things. First Timothy three sixteen, Paul would say, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world and received up into glory. And they were wanting Paul to go to other things. And Paul is saying, I'm sticking right here. I've been made a steward of something. I don't make up what I'm a steward of. I am a servant of Jesus Christ. I do what he told me to do. And he's given me a stewardship of his mysteries. And I'm supposed to draw from those things and present those things to you. I warn from those things. I teach from those things. Those are the things that are going to develop in you the what God wants. And it ends up being a trust issue. Not only between the individual and the Lord, but between him and those he's ministering to. Because if I turn to be a steward of other things, then I'm no longer acting as a servant of Christ or a steward of the mysteries of God. That's why he says in verse 2, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Joseph needed to be faithful in Potiphar's house to be promoted, in the jail to be promoted, in Egypt to be second in command. He needed to be faithful with what was given to him and faithful to the word of his master. And Paul wanted to be faithful to God and to God's word, to who God called him to be, to what God called him to do in service. Faithful in the common ways, day in and day out, not just with big things, but 24-7 with the simple things. Whatever God would give Paul from day to day, that's what he needed to be faithful with. And Paul trusted that it was worth it because his faithfulness was tied to something that was succeeding. Right? When, we, when we feel like what we're giving ourselves to or our lives to is falling apart, it causes us to lose hope. Well, why am I pouring myself into this? You know, the classic, you see the sports star just kind of like give up halfway through the year because they know they don't have a chance or something like that. But when you feel like I'm committed to something that is succeeding, it causes you to pour in more. And for a Christian, we have the thing that is succeeding for all eternity. That, in fact, is even more important than my life, which is why Paul was going to lay down his life for the mysteries of God, for the stewardship that he'd been given, for Jesus Christ, because even his death did not mean that Christ was unfaithful or the things that Christ promised wouldn't come through. That when he stepped into eternity, it was still going to be successful. And so it is important as a steward that one be found faithful in everything that the Lord puts in front of them. It's not flashy, this type of faithfulness, but 
It can become unique, certainly in quantity. To see a person who's faithful with their whole life is a rare thing. Charles Stanley just passed away. By the grace of God, he made it. He was a guy who was faithful with the mysteries of God for a long time. And that's something that's unique. There's been other men recently that just passed away, Gordon Fee or not that long ago, even, you know, uh, Billy Graham or uh, J.I. Packer or Warren Wearsby. You think of these individuals, they were faithful in their lives to the thing that Jesus called them to do and with the truth of his word and what that produced in a life. And even on smaller scales where it doesn't make the news, but we all know those individuals that their lives faithful to God and faithful to his truth, what they produce in families, neighborhoods, communities. And without those things, there's certainly something lacking. And Paul says anybody who's going to be certainly in ministry, here's how you need to look at them. They're a servant of Jesus, Jesus Christ. They're a steward of the mysteries of God. And it's important for a steward to be found faithful. That's, that's what you need to think about. That's how you should look at us. That's how you should see us. That's how you should consider us. Not fighting against one another, not having one form of wisdom better than another, not being better than another because we're different. Those were all unspiritual ways to look at others, particularly ministers. Paul says this is a different way. And there's a reason behind all that. Verse 3, he says, But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Paul kind of moves to the next stage. Okay, well, who's going to judge this faithfulness? Paul says, Jesus. Not even me. He's like, why, why is this so important? Well, because there was a lot of uh, thoughts, judgments that was coming from this church or individuals in the church, not the whole church. In relation to Paul, they didn't like, again, the things that he said, the wisdom, his bodily presence they would complain about. His apostleship was challenged. His message was challenged. There's a lot of things being judged about Paul. We don't like what he's doing or how he's doing it. And Paul would say, I'm not concerned about how you judge me. Again, I'm getting my orders from Jesus Christ. I got one boss. You're not that boss. <laughs> and on top of that, Lest he seem prideful, he said, in my conscience, I don't, I don't have anything immediately that I can judge and say is sinful. I had a clear conscience, which is a good thing to have before the Lord. But he said, I don't even trust in that. I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but I know there could be wrong in my life still. And I'm going to stand before the judge one day. He is going to be the judge. And Paul wasn't, because of that, moved by the judgment of other people, which, again, in our society is just greater and greater and greater, that pressure growing. Certainly, social media has caused us to uh, jump in ways that we haven't seen before. 
because there's so much pressure to see what other people are doing, to be liked, to put something out there and have people respond to it, positive and negative, or even just, you know, to have a voyeuristic glory type search where you're seeing if anybody says anything positive about you or negative or whatever. There's so much pressure now to, to live and to take into thought and consideration what other people are doing all around us. And Paul said, I need to know what one, I have one boss and I need to know what that person wants me to do. And they're going to be my judge. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm not concerned. It's a small thing with me that I should be judged by you. Or he says by a human court. And Paul had been put in numerous human courts. He was on trial for all different types of things. But he says, I'm not worried about those things. And I'm not even worried about myself. I know I don't even have clarity there. So certainly he's warning them how they would look at one another, judge one another. We read in Romans 14.10, Paul said, why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He had made this kind of point before. Everybody's going to stand before Christ to give an account. And he just spoke about that in chapter 3. And he sums up the issue now here practically saying, therefore, because this is all true, verse 5, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Here Paul says, I got to tell you something important in terms of making judgments. He says, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't make any judgments in life. Uh, Certainly, even in this letter, he is going to command the opposite. In chapter 2, verse 15, he said, he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged by no one. In chapter 5, the next chapter, he's going to say, what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? He's going to say, my spirit is judging this man in your midst already, a guy who is living in sexual sin. Chapter 6, verse 2, he's going to say, don't you know that saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge in the smallest matters? So, you know, sometimes this seems conflicting. The, The point is, The Bible teaches there's a right way to judge things and there's a wrong way to judge things. Again, the world and people are very familiar with Jesus saying, judge not lest you be judged. Jesus also says in John 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. People don't like to quote that one back to back. Because what he's saying is there's a right way to judge things and there's a wrong way to judge things. I can be judgmental, I can be cruel, I can be hypocritical, certainly that's wrong. But there's a correct way to judge things as well. And what Paul is here is he's warning about a particular thing that we should not judge, because God is going to judge that. And what he warns about here is, notice he says, the Lord when he comes will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Only the Lord can judge the unseen motives of other servants of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. I cannot judge the unseen motives 
of other servants of Jesus Christ. Only the Lord will bring those things into the light. We are called to judge actions, fruits. The Bible said we can look at a tree and see if its fruit is good or bad. If a person is a thief and I call them a thief, I'm not judging them. I'm stating a fact. If I'm a gambler and I call you a gambler, I'm not judging you. I'm stating a fact. Now, I can be mean. Right? Sometimes we say they're judging. Really, we're just saying you're being mean. But if you're an addict and you say, I'm addicted, you're not judging yourself, per se. You're stating something that is true. So it's not judgmental to say something that is true. What we can't do is when I'm judging not what somebody is doing, but why they're doing it, then I'm on thin ice. If I'm, if somebody's standing here leading worship, I'm just saying they just do that because they want to be popular with other people. I can't know that actually. Now that might be my fear. They sent this text to me because really they meant this or, you know, uh, whatever. We have these scenarios. They didn't call or they left this thing out. And I think we've all been in scenarios where we thought one thing and then there's a personal, perfectly reasonable explanation why something happened that way. These, these things always happen in our lives. But we, we often feel very confident as to our ability to read the motives of other people. Their actions might not actually be bad, but we're reading into those things what we feel like is there. And these people couldn't see Paul's heart, unfortunately. And certainly, Jesus Christ ended up in a similar scenario, judged wrongly in many ways. And what we need to understand is Paul's saying here, look, there's going to be a day where even if you're right about those unclean motives, there's no way I can know. But there is one person who knows. All unclean motives, all the secret counsels of men's hearts. And one day, all those things are going to be judged. And this ends up being both a serious warning for us and also an encouragement for us. We're warned because it's easy to do even religious stuff for selfish means. We know there's plenty of people out there who are serving the Lord just for money or who are doing what they're doing just to be seen or talked about in a particular way. Self-love loves to be congratulated for not having self-love. You know, people do stuff and they, they, there's always that kind of little string attached where if you don't respond the right way, then they start getting angry, pulling on that string, tightening up. You can feel the tension versus a person who is there to serve the Lord. The motives of our hearts, and we can all feel those selfish, negative motives come in at times. And I think that's why Paul says there's even times where I can't judge myself. God knows. We all have to kind of fight those things off in various ways. But nobody is getting away with those things. If we feel like they are in the human realm, one day it's all going to come out. We're going to stand before the judge of the earth. He's going to actually know why we did what we did. And everybody's going to be held accountable for those things. The secret counsels of men's hearts. It's also an encouragement because like Jesus and the apostles before us, every true and faithful servant of God is going to have his name and motives slandered at times. 
There are going to be people who take wrongly what we do. We try to do the right thing, and they see it the wrong way. We're accused falsely for something. There are plenty of Christians all through the ages who are drugged before trial after trial or wicked judge with all types of lies about them. Many put to death. There's numerous stories of martyrs that are standing before judges and human beings and saying, you're a heretic, you're going to be put to death. And so many of their response was just something along the lines of, we'll see when we stand at the judgment day. And for the person who wants to serve the Lord, the judgment day that God knows the secret counsels of our hearts becomes an encouragement. Because I don't just get a resurrected body, I get a resurrected reputation. And that is one that stays and is lasting. And what Paul is saying is, here's, here's what you can't do. You can't judge the secret counsels of people's hearts, the hidden things of darkness, before the time. That's not up to you and I. That's wrong judgment. There's right judgment. There's things we need to judge. We need to call things what God calls them. But there's a wrong way to judge. And the wrong way here is when I'm judging motives. And I can't actually see and know what those motives are. But when my motive is right, and again, I stand before that judge, this is a pretty like, remarkable sentence that Paul says, then each one's praise will come from God. Everyone at that moment will have praise from God. I think we just have so little idea of what that means. When God gives praise, a thing is not only praise, it must be praise. When God pronounces praise on a life, when he pronounces honor on a life, it's a sound that echoes through the eternal ages. All the angels of heaven, all the redeemed saints, when they hear God praise something, then must, have to, cannot do anything other than also praise that thing in the same way for all eternity. Because God's not going to change his mind. When he gives praise, he is not a respecter of persons. He does not flatter. He does not pull words. When he gives praise, he means it. And if praise in this world is something that is difficult to live with, as it is, you can get addicted to a lot of things, but human praise is probably the thing that's the easiest to get addicted to. Feels good. It's nice to have people recognize us. It's hard at times not to respond to that. There's a desire in all of us for it on a certain level, but that's Satan from the beginning wanting to have the worship that only belongs to God. And there's, there's a pull in there in human life, in the world we live in, to have people look at us and praise us. But if the praise of the world is one thing, what is it going to be to stand in heaven with all the saints and angels and hear praise from God Almighty. That's why Paul can say, 
your judgment means very little to me. I'm going to stand before him one day. And he knows the real motives of every heart. And when that happens, they're all going to be brought out. And every man will have his praise from God. That's a pretty, it's a pretty powerful moment, powerful truth. In fact, Jesus says to the Pharisees, how can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes only from God? Are we seeking the honor of people? Are we seeking the honor of those will, that will have no honor at the judgment seat of Christ? Are we making the decisions of our lives, holding into the account the honor of people that will have no honor from God? Am I envying the end of those whose end I fear? The lives of those who are going to be judged at the judgment day? This is a pretty powerful thing that Paul says. Do I seek the honor that will come from God? I'm supposed to be his servant. I'm supposed to be his steward. Can't worry about what other people are thinking. My obedience to God is always going to put me in conflict with some individuals and their thoughts. Particularly the person who thinks that they know what God is telling me to do. That's going to happen to all of us. And the choice has to be, Lord, I'm going to do what you want me to do because I'm looking for the praise that comes from you. Do I seek the honor that comes from God or from men? And Paul is going to build on this. He's going to say, now these things, brethren, in verse 6, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes. He's saying, I've continued to use the party names that you brought up to use me and Apollos in this discussion to teach you that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from another? Or what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Paul's saying, look, I, I want you guys to, to understand what's happening here. And I've continued using myself and Apollos as examples so that you can learn not to go, he says, beyond what is written. So there's a little argument. Some people say, is it the current epistle he's referring to here? Is he referring to the Old Testament scriptures? I really think there's not a difference. Obviously, he's writing a letter and he wants them to understand what he's saying in the letter. But Paul, all through the letter, is referring to the truth of the Old Testament scriptures. And he's also inspired by the Holy Spirit. So this is scripture. So it's kind of a mute argument there. The reality is, he, he wants them to stay and not think beyond what God has to say about them and others. You just need to understand what God says. You're making up your own ideas here. God is not teaching you to pit us against one another. He's our boss. He created us unique. We're just his servants. Stay in that mindset. And in their evident pride, they were lifting up their differences against one another. Notice he says, who makes you differ from one another? Paul was different than Apollos. Different calls, different gifts. But what did you have that you did not receive? They, everything in their lives they had received from God. He says as well, why do you, if you received it, boast as if you had not received it? Why do you act like this is something that's yours? Again, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. 
Let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. Let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness and judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Everything we have in our lives, we have received. We don't have any good thing in our lives to thank ourselves for. Our souls are not our own. Our time is not our own. Our gifts, our talents, and our abilities, they are not our own. We don't have anything to glory in as if we're the ones who did it. We received everything. Christos in the church father says, all this talk about mine and yours is bare words only and does not stand for things. You say, that's my house. Could be gone today. You can't really keep it. You don't have all power to actually make it your house. You could have been born in any time in history. You could have been born anywhere else in the world. It's, it's your stewardship. It's his house. It's not my life. It's his. John Trapp said, of all the good in us, we may well say as that young man did of his hatchet when he lost the top. Alas, master, but it was borrowed. It's all borrowed. Everything good in our lives we should see as something we have received from God himself. And even the things we don't have. And we simply hold them as stewards. Now, Paul wants to move here in 8 through 13 into pretty, a pretty stunning rebuke. We're going to see both some severity and mercy here. He's speaking the truth in love. There's warning and exhortation which is very Christ-like. Verse 8, he says, You are full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we might also reign with you. He says, you, you guys got everything. You're totally full. You're rich. You got it all. You're reigning already like your kings. And he's like, I really wish you did. I wish the kingdom came and you were reigning like that, because then we would be reigning too. But there's a problem. He says, for verse 9, For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. He's going to say, We are fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst. We are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world and the offscouring of all things until now. What Paul's pointing out here, what he wants them to understand is this. He's saying how the Corinthians see themselves. And they thought that Paul ought to live like them. We're wise, we're rich, we got it all. And what Paul is doing on the other hand is he's showing, no, this is what I actually am. And you're actually supposed to live like me. And very important in verse 9, you notice he says, Paul's speaking, he says, 
us, the apostles, he, he includes both himself and the other apostles in this illustration, which I think was important first because Paul did have a particular call to suffer for the cause of Christ. Jesus called him to be an example of somebody who suffered. That was part of his ministry, not one that a lot of people sign up for, but he had a unique calling for that. So when Paul says this, he's, it's not just him. This is the type of suffering and difficulty that he says, us, we're all facing. It's not just a personal thing here. Second is, it sets against the Corinthians, all their teachers. It doesn't allow them to divide them in the camps, right? They're saying Paul, Apollos, Peter, they're dividing these guys like certain guys. He's saying, no, all of us live like this. So all the people you would claim as your teachers are on the other side of the issue here. He's being, he's separating them. And third, lastly, it confounds all the live large apostles of their day. And really it confounds all those live large apostles of our day. There's still people who say, if you're really following Christ, you'll be wealthy, you'll have health, you'll be accepted, popularity, money, name it, claim it, right? These believers, same thing. And what Paul is saying, you, you seem like you're doing great. You talk like you're great. Look at us, the actual apostles that God was working in in remarkable ways. They were not accepted. They were not considered wise. It's like we're homeless at times. We're hungry. We're working with our own two hands to survive. We're not seen as popular. We're despised. And this isn't the church. This is in the eyes of the world. People love Paul, the believers, most of them. People would love the apostles, but what he's saying in general, you, you guys, the influence of the world was creeping into Corinth and they were searching for this worldly type of view and was creeping into their Christ-like life. And Paul says, the apostles, again in verse nine, God has displayed us last, kind of last in order. We've had the law, we've had the prophets, John, this last Old Testament prophet who can point at Jesus, say, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And then these apostles chosen and sent out these messengers by Christ. We've been kind of brought out last as men condemned to death. We've been made a spectacle. We've been put on theater is the idea to the world and to angels and to men. He says our lives and following Christ, the suffering that we face is something that even angels are looking into. You know, the, I don't think we think very often, the purpose of our lives is often bigger than we know. There's another world out there. Job had no idea the conversation that was happening in the heavenly realm around his life, that God's glory was involved in it. Paul, when he speaks to Timothy, will numerous times say, I'm charging you before God and Jesus Christ and all the heavenly angels. He, he was concerned with heaven being involved what happened in his life. I think it would be good for us all to think a little bit more that God, Jesus Christ, and all the angels are watching us as we're walking to work, stepping into our day, that my, my, my life actually matters in eternity. Paul said, God has put us forward as a certain type of thing 
And the general reception here is not a popular one. He ends up kind of summing it all up in verse 13. He says, we've been made the filth of the world and the offscouring of all things. The words have the idea of what's washed off by rinsing and by scraping. First, you rinse it off the filth and then you got to scrape off the scour. (laughs) Both ideas that of refuse. Like we are not something welcomed or received. And by pointing out their general reception in the world and the reception of their message and the life they're living, certainly he's pointing to them, there's something wrong with your message then and your life. And certainly I think this puts us all to shame somewhat. I don't, nobody wants this. Paul didn't ask to be off scouring. But in his obedience to Christ, there was no middle of the road path for him. And I think all of us, we're all tempted to, I don't want to break with Christ, but I try to appease the world as much as I can. I kind of want to like live this nice life without stress that I have as much as I can have it. And the reality is, all of us in our way have to accept going outside the camp to Jesus Christ. All those who wish to live godly in Christ Jesus shall face persecution. And Paul was saying, whatever kind of life you guys think you're living, you have it all. If you look at us apostles, there's something different going on. And there is a different type of life being lived. I think it's obvious in our own nation that the majority that maybe we used to feel like we lived in is quickly moving into a minority. And people who are going to hold as faithful stewards to the mysteries of God are going to find themselves looked down on, unpopular, as offscouring and refuse because of faith and obedience. We're not supposed to actually, we shouldn't be treated wrong because we're jerks. Paul says you shouldn't suffer because you're a murderer or because you're cruel to people. But in obedience to Christ, the world did not love Jesus, didn't love the truth he presented, didn't love it that he claimed to be king and demanded surrender to his authority, the repentance of sins, a following of him. People like Jesus when he gave them food, when he healed their diseases, but then when he said he was king, people didn't like Jesus anymore. And it's the same thing in the world today. But Christ asks us to willingly accept that. Again, Christos and the church father said, he can take away your glory without your consent and bring you low, but he will have it from you with your own good will that he might reward you. Our whole life is his. He could bring us low if he wanted to, and sometimes he does, but what he says is, humble yourselves in my sight. Give it to me freely. Accept the place that I accepted on your behalf. Paul saying, follow me in the same way. Your life 
is looking a lot different than the apostles that were sent out. And he's going to say in 14 now, I don't write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you, say, I don't want you cringing in front of me or shaking and trembling. I'm not trying to just make you feel embarrassed. As your father, as children, because I love you, I'm warning you. This, this thought process of theirs was conforming them into a worldly, unspiritual, carnal babyish Christian life. And Paul says, it's going to get worse, actually. And I'm warning you, you need to see these thoughts that are immature. 15, for though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. He says, look, he, he is the one who went there, who shared the gospel with them. Most people, you can remember, who's the person who shared the gospel with you that led you to Christ? And there's a particular tie to that individual. And Paul says, he cared about them. I spent time with you. He knew them. He loved them. He saw them come to faith. He saw them begin to grow. And he's saying, 16, therefore, I urge you, imitate me. Don't be like these other people who didn't care about you, who didn't display Christ-like life to you. Imitate me as your spiritual father. You've had a lot of ministers, but Paul constantly referred to his own life as an example. He's going to do it again in chapter 11, verse 1. Follow me as I follow Jesus Christ. Galatians 4.12, Ephesians 5.1, Philippians 3.17, 1 Thessalonians 1.6, 2.14, 2 Thessalonians 3.9, 2 Timothy chapter 2. He's going to mention a lot of times, you've seen my life my pattern of life. It's the same thing that I've taught everywhere. Notice he says in 17, for this reason I have sent Timothy to you who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Paul's saying, I don't want you to just hear my message. You saw my life. That's what every true minister should be able to say. There is nothing, there is nothing unique he was teaching in one place that he didn't teach everywhere. And the way I lived with you is the way I live everywhere. And you heard my message and then you saw my life and there was nothing in my message in my life that went against that message. And really, any believer should be able to say the same thing. This isn't just a special thing that Paul should be able to say. We should all be able to say, I urge you imitate me. You've seen my life. It's the same as my message. Certainly ministers especially should say this. But Paul here is speaking as a father in the faith. Fathers, mothers, we should be able to say the same thing to our children. You should be able to imitate me the way I follow Jesus Christ. I want to remind you not just of the things I say, but the way I've lived in front of you? Do children see hypocrisy between our message and our life? Do they see us suffer in faithful service to Christ? They see us be rejected in sharing the gospel. Situations at work or in our culture, do they know you're a steward of your spouse, of them, of your home, of your money, of your time? What are they walking away with? D.A. Carson in his commentary uh, in 
Philippians uh, speaks about being in college and a guy in college that they knew was very spiritual, known for being spiritual. And these two guys who didn't really know the Lord were like, all right, come on, tell us about Jesus. He said the guy was kind of gruff and he was like, no, I don't have time for you and you're not serious. And they're like, what? No, we're serious. He's like, no, actually, you're not serious. And they're like, no, we're serious. Okay, okay, if you're serious, then live with me for the next month. They're like, what? He's like, yeah, I don't want to just trade ideas with you. Live with me. And the one guy was like, forget it, I'm not doing that. And the other guy moved his bed in the room, lived with him. He said after a month, that dude was saved. That there was, wasn't just a message. He was like, I don't have time to just argue ideas with you. But there was a life there. If I took an unsaved person, said they're going to move their bed into your house, what life do they see? That's why Paul's saying, it's not... It's not just the words. It's a demonstration of spirit and power. It doesn't have to be fancy miracles. It's spirit and power when you see peace, joy, love, patience, gentleness, kindness, purpose, meaning in a life. Nowadays, culture doesn't have much meaning. We produce a lot of things to live with, not much to live for which is why people are checking out. Check out with a gun and anger or heroin or alcohol. Got more people than I think maybe any other country on psychiatric drugs, loneliness, any stat, anything you want to bring up. America has more stuff, but we also have more meaninglessness. Nothing to live for. Paul says, you should see my life. He had everything to live for. Something worth dying for. And the love of it was evident. And he said, I'm going to send Timothy to you because Timothy was a true son in the faith. He said, there's nobody I can trust like Timothy. Timothy's going to teach you the things I teach everywhere, but he will live before you as well. The life that you need to see. He says, that's what I want from you. Now, he continues, there are some puffed up as though I were not coming to you. Paul admits, notice he says, now there are some. He knows this whole church is not all cruel, horrible people. But there are some, there's a group in the church that is prideful and arrogant. And that smaller group is affecting a larger group, as always. You go to any church anywhere in the world, and there's going to be a smaller group that starts something that's affecting a larger group. Paul says, there are some there that are puffed up, they're arrogant, as though I'm not going to come. He says, just because I'm sending Timothy, don't think I'm not coming or don't intend to come. I still want to be there with you. And he says, I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. Trusting Lord, and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. I don't need to know just their theological persuasions. Let me see what happens in their life. That was Paul's message. You, you can say whatever you want about the wisdom of the world, but what about your life, right? That's his whole point. Well, look at us apostles. And look at you and your envying and your divisions. You're fighting the carnality there. The kingdom of God, it's not just a message that we believe. If 
I check off all the right things about the Bible and my life's a mess, I'm missing something. I'm missing something. Paul says, I want to see it in power. Finally, he says, what do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? He's making it clear. If God does will and I get there, I'm not coming as a person who won't do anything or demand anything. Paul meant business. It's kind of like stay in your room until your dad comes home. <laughs> what do you want? Right? How do you want me to show up here? Paul doesn't want to. He's not trying to be an angry dude who has a problem. He's like, if I have to come and discipline and bring order, I'll do that because I love. I'd rather come in meekness. Rather be gracious with you guys. I wanna, I'd rather come and be gentle. But if there's going to be an arrogant group there that has to be dealt with, Paul also is not afraid to do that. You know, love in the end is willing to do the most. If you have a doctor who cares about their patient and they're cutting away something that's harmful in their life, a tumor or something, they're going to go to the fullest extent to remove that because of their love. They're not just going to back off because there might be some pain or some discomfort. They, they are going to do the fullest extent in love to actually help the person. And Paul, because he's actually loving, says, I'll come and bring a rod <laughs> if I have to. It's not my heart. I want to be a father that you can imitate and you can follow his lifestyle. But if I have to, because I'm loving, I'll come deal with what needs to be dealt with. And I will be thorough in those things. So let's stand. We'll pick up in five. He's going to pick up on his thoroughness in the next chapter. But I would just say for us, as we worship, maybe particularly even before the Lord, or maybe before a wife or family, your faithfulness has not been what it should be. I'd encourage you. Part of the way to be faithful, right? The Lord says when we make a mistake, we're supposed to repent. Repentance is a great gift because it means we can immediately be put back on track. And obedience looks like saying, I'm sorry. This was immaturity. It needs to change. And allow the Lord to do that in your life. But let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your word. Lord, I pray that that seed sown would find good soil in each of our hearts that we would hear what you have to say to us. And Lord, I do pray in a world that is crazier and crazier that the love in your house would grow sweeter and sweeter, Lord. I pray that it would increase and abound, that you allow us to do good to all men, but especially to those in the household of God. And that people would know that we're your disciples by the love that we have for one another. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.